Redeemer family, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John 15. We'll be reading John 15, uh, verses 1 through 17. I'll give you a few moments to get there, and then I'll start reading. I uh, would ask that you would just keep your hand there throughout the service. I will be uh, calling your attention uh, to it over and over and over again. This is God's Word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, and he withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your own joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love no one has than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we love your word. It is precious. It is sweeter than honey. By hiding it in your heart, uh, our hearts, your people, learn to not sin against you. We learn to image you and to savor you and to cherish you. And we get all of this from your word. And so I pray that you will speak through your servant right now. May you build up those who are down. May you humble those who are prideful. May you bind up, Lord, those who are weary. May you call back those who have strayed away. May you save those who don't know you. I pray that you would do all of this um, for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, John 15 is... uh, a really important passage in all of Scripture. And I think we can uh, see the importance because of where it takes place. There's a strong chance that uh, Jesus is walking past a vineyard, a vineyard that he himself created, a vineyard that probably yielded grapes for wine and drink. And he is with his disciples. And it is no longer 12 of them. It is now 11 because in John 13, 30, and 31, we're told that Judas rose up from the table and Judas went out to betray King Jesus. 
And then the verse right before our passage this morning, I want you to look at it. Notice what Jesus says. Judas has already gone. Judas is out betraying. And Jesus tells the disciples, the last sentence, rise, let us go from here. And so Jesus is no longer in the upper room when John 15 takes place. He is somewhere between the upper room and John 18, the brook at the Kidron Valley where there was a garden where Jesus was actually betrayed. And so what we're getting right now in John 15 is probably walking discourse. Jesus is walking from the room to the cross. And these are his final words to his disciples. Of all the things he could say to them as he walks toward the cross, he specifically chooses to say these words. And that's important. I'm sure the disciples, they know the way that Jesus is going. They know he is about to be betrayed and crucified. And they're going to wrestle with their identity. And Jesus, I think, is reminding them of who you are and whose you are and what I'm calling you to be and to do and how you will be empowered by the Spirit to be precisely and exactly who you were made for. And so that's what I want to wrestle with this morning with you. I got three points, and then I'll close with a fourth point, but I promise you it's going to be really quick, right? So we got three big points, and here they are. I think Jesus is going to uh, give them a window into their identity. He is then going to remind them that it is humanly impossible for them to be and to do and to uh, what God is calling them to do. Then thirdly, he's going to make much of the divine enabling. If we are to be who God calls us to be, God himself will have to see to it. And then there's going to be some collateral blessings that we'll talk about. And so the first thing, what's our identity? We all want to know why we're here. Even the 43-year-old pastor standing before you, why am I here? Your two-year-old daughter who asks why for everything. Why do I have to go to bed? Why do I have to take a bath? Why can't I eat this? Why do I have boundaries, right? They want to know why. Deep down inside, they're wanting to know why they are here. The 90-year-old woman wants to know, why am I here even in this season of life? And there are really two ways to answer that. And I want to borrow two ideas from Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And Truman lays out two worldviews. And and one worldview is what he and uh, James Taylor label as mimesis, M-I-M-E-S-I-S. And the other worldview is poiesis, P-O-I-E-S-I-S. And they're drastically different. The mimetic worldview views the world as having a given order and given meaning, and human beings are required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. That is mimetic. Poetic, by contrast, sees the world as raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. And that is so important. 
And, and, and they trace it through farming. So it used to be that when the farmer planted, the farmer was at the mercy of creation. The farmer planted, the farmer scattered, but the farmer was dependent, completely dependent upon the sun and the soil. He was dependent upon natural disasters not happening. He had no control over weather, minimal control over soil, and little control over if his endeavors would succeed. In one sense, he had no control over life or death. He was entirely at the mercy of the environment. In that world, the authority of the created order was obvious and it was unavoidable. And the individual needed to conform to it. Authority was outside of him or her. And he goes on to write that because of technology and science, we've changed our authority and our relationship with creation. Irrigation allows water to be moved or stored. Advances in science enable us to test soil quality and add needed fertilizers and pesticides. We can manipulate the land to yield better crops. We can genetically modify foods so that they are immune to certain conditions that would have wiped out entire harvests. Innovation is good, but the downside to our advancement is that we live or we think we live in a world that we can manipulate the outcomes of our own wills and our own desires, and it has paved the way for the rise of the mighty self. And because that is the air we breathe, when we answer the question on why am I here, you know what the modern self says? I'm here for me. I'm here for my pleasure. I'm here for what I want. I can control land. I can get to D.C. in two hours where it would have taken days. I can type an address in and get somewhere and not have to think about directions. It's the rise of the mighty self, and that is the air we breathe. And because that's the air we breathe, we think we determine our destiny. And we think we know why we exist. And we will not bow the knee to creator. And we will not submit to authority. And we think we're the captain of our faith. And we think we're the masters of our souls. But that is poetic. And that is not a Christian worldview. Did you notice what Jesus says in verse 16? He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. That is authority. That is God saying, you did not work your way to me. I'm your redeemer. And I gave you eyes to see and I chose you. And then Jesus, on top of saying, I'm redeemer, I'm creator. He goes on to say, and I chose you and appointed you that you would bear fruit. That is purpose. So what you get in Jesus's words is his authority and you get in Jesus's words the reason we're alive to bear fruit unto our creator. And that's why you see Jesus saying over and over and over again in our passage, bear fruit. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it will bear more fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And I don't think Jesus is doing anything new with this idea of authority and then purpose, fruitfulness. You see it in Isaiah 5, 
where I, God says, I planted a vineyard and I built a watchtower and I hewed out a wine vat and I looked for it to yield grapes. Who is God talking about there? He's talking about Israel and he's saying, I planted you. I brought you out of Egypt and I have a right to look for fruit. But I don't think Jesus is just stopping there. What were the first words that humans heard from the mouth of God? And I'm talking about Genesis 2, 1, where it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God did that. He created the male and female after his likeness. And then God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule and subdue it. The first thing humans heard was you're made in my image and I made you to be fruitful. And that is not simply having kids. And so it's no coincidence that the first thing they heard from the mouth of God be fruitful. And the last thing Jesus tells them before he goes to the cross, be fruitful. Do you see what's happening here? This is both challenging and comforting. It's challenging because the world we live in says that you exist for you and unto you and for you. And the gospel says that's a lie. The gospel says you exist for him. And he's set you apart to bear fruit for him. It's challenging because we lose our way and we breathe this air. It's also comforting because it's a pressure relief valve. There's beautiful simplicity here. In whatever season, in whatever stage of life, whether you're a newborn or more days are behind you than in front of you and you're hours before death, whether you're newly married or recently widowed, whether you're single or in college, in any and every circumstance, you were made to bear fruit for your creator. And that is simple and it's beautiful. Now, the second thing I think Jesus tells us is, is our inability. Our inability to produce the type of fruit the creator is after on our own. And, and, and I want to emphasize that on our own. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't define fruit, even though he uses it over and over and over again? I think he intends us to use our imagination shaped by education from Scripture. Uh, guys are all over the place. Bruce Milne and Andre, uh, Andreas Kostenberger say that they, they define this fruit as missions, that what God has in mind here with fruit here is that 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 the, the, uh, the people of God will be a light for the nations, that, that this is a missional component. Uh, I, I think I, I like J.C. Ryle's understanding better. He says the fruit that Jesus has in mind here is repentance towards God, faith towards Jesus, holiness of life and conduct. 
You could also add Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so it's not an either or, it's all of the above. God wants the earth to be full of people who love people and creation, who hate evil, who love truth, who practice mercy, who outdo one another in doing good, who grant forgiveness, who live within limits, who live in submission to him, who work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord and not men who trust him for their daily bread, who bring order and beauty into chaos, who care about the vulnerable, who view children as a blessing, who practice sexual holiness, who pray for kings and leaders in high places, who are excellent friends, who share good news and word and deed. He wants his people to be people who walk in faith and repentance in Jesus. He wants us to worship and enjoy him who practice and possess these traits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We are to be this, not some of the time, but all of the time, not with some of our hearts, but with all of our hearts, not just our outward actions, but our inner piety. And the standard is in verse 10. When Jesus says, just as I have, that's the standard. And that's problematic if we're really honest. You look at King Jesus. He is the epitome of fruitfulness. He is the epitome of what God is after. And I don't know about you, but I look at my own life and I don't measure up. And they didn't in Genesis. He told them to be fruitful. And by Genesis 3, their fruit was soiled. Isaiah 5, he planted them as a vineyard and he came looking for grapes. And what did it yield, says Isaiah? Wild grapes. Jeremiah 2, 21, I planted you as a choice vine of holy, of pure seed. How then have you become degenerate? and become a wild vine. You see what the Bible is gonna say? It's saying what God calls us to, what we were created for, what we owe him, we have the inability in and of our own selves to do that. And that is why Jesus says in verse five, look at that, he says, apart from me, You can't do it. You can do nothing. On your own, on our own, with human strength and human righteousness and human good works, we can never be the fruit and bear the fruit that God is after. And this is sobering because verse 5 needs some attention. He says, apart from me, we can do nothing. He doesn't mean that we can't do anything good by earthly standards. Non-Christian build hospitals. Non-Christians give away tons of money. Non-Christians do nice things. It's just that the nice things that we do apart from faith and apart from worship and apart from the spirit, it will not stand in the judgment. It will be burned away and it will not last. It's impossible. At best, our fruit will look like imitation. At worst, it will be opposition. So when I grew up, when I was growing up, 
My dad never, ever went to the mall. I don't remember one single time where Big L went to the mall. My mom would go shop. If he didn't like it, she would bring it back. He'd take it back. I mean, they take it back like he did not do the store and he did not do the grocery store. But one thing my dad did do was bring us watermelons. My dad had some duck offs like on highways and byways that he would go get Smith County watermelons. And my dad would bring those Smith County watermelons home. And within an hour, two of them gone. The taste, the texture, the soil, the body of knowledge for those people in Smith County who do watermelons, they do really do watermelons well. And so one day I was with my dad and we were driving uh, through Rankin County. And I said, Dad, Smith County watermelons. Let's get some Smith County watermelons. He said, boy, there ain't no Smith County watermelons. I said, well, he got the sign. He got the sign, the, 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 the white sign that he hand wrote Smith County watermelons. My dad drove up. He said, boy, you see that tag? That tag says Rankin County. Ain't nobody in Rankin County got Smith County watermelons. He said, the guys that I buy my, my watermelons from, they got Smith County on the sign and on the tag. I know the guy who's growing them. I know where he sets up, and we are only buying from him. Those are knockoffs. Those are bootleg. Ain't nobody got Smith County watermelons in Rankin County. No shade on Rankin County, all right? God is after Smith County. And if we're honest, what we often give him is Rankin County. I promise you, no shade on Rankin County. No shade. I see my Rankin County people getting upset. No, no shade, right? Y'all know how this works. We got the outward look that we're Smith County. But inside, that fruit is really rotten. We do good things, but it's actually so that we can get an attaboy, right? That's not the fruit that God is after. We get aging parents, and it's our turn to parent them and to clean up their diapers and to go see by them, and we don't want to do it. And we complain, and our hearts are not there. And God tells us to love our spouses like Christ loved the church, but we don't want to lay down our life. We don't even want to get up and not watch TV. You see what I'm getting at? That if, if, if we're talking about the fruit that God is after, it is not imitation. It is the real deal, not some of the time, but all of the time. It is perfectly holy outwardly and comes from an inward place of worship and awe. And here's the thing. If you and I are honest, we fall short. Which leads us to our third point. If we cannot do this on our own, then how then can it be done? And here's the thing. We are enabled to bear the fruit that God loves because of God himself. And hear, hear me, it's going to be two aspects of this. The first aspect to fruit bearing that God has in mind is passive. And then it's active. 
if you get this order wrong, you are not reading into the gospel or the book of John as Jesus would have us. So in the Alice in Wonderland, there's a scene when Alice kind of falls through the hole and she uh, is with the rabbit. She meets the rabbit. And the rabbit in the, the 19 kind of 50 Alice in Wonderland, he's like frantic. He, he doesn't know where he's supposed to be. And, 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 and Alice is there and he's late for somewhere, but he doesn't know where he's supposed to go. And he's looking for his glove. And finally he sees Alice and he's just frantic, frantic, frantic. And then he looks at Alice. He looks at her and says these words. He said, don't just do something. Stand there. Don't just do something. Stand there. And you know what he meant to say. He meant to say, don't just stand there, do something. But from a humorous standpoint, because his life is so frantic, he actually tells her, don't just go do, stand. If there were ever a verse in the Bible where we need to not go do something, but stand there, it's right here. Because some of y'all hear me, and I know how your heart works because I know how my heart works. You hear me saying, you got to bear fruit, you got to bear fruit, you got to bear fruit. And here is what your heart starts to tell you. I got to stop cussing. Right? I got to get up 45 minutes earlier to have a quiet time. Man, I got to be more patient and kind with my kids. I got to, 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 I got to. That is how your heart goes. And here's what I want to tell you. That is not how this passage works. This passage, did you notice that before Jesus gets to anything about our fruit, before he talks about our fruitfulness, the first thing he talks about is who he is? He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, which I'm translating farmer. This is so, this is so important. This is the only I am statement where Jesus doesn't just disclose something about him. He says, I am this and my father is this. In other words, you get a two for one. That what Jesus is doing, this is Trinitarian language. That what Jesus is saying is, I am this and my father is this. And in the next chapter of John, the Holy Spirit will be this. And so what Jesus is doing right here with his disciples, the last thing he wants them to know is we are a triune, loving, ever working, equal, one God, three persons. And if you are going to bear fruit and be who God calls you to be, it's not going to start with you going to start with us and who we are and what we do. We care more about your fruit bearing than you can ever do. And we will do everything it takes on our part to make you a part of the vine so that you can bear fruit. And so before you are anxious to go do and do and do and do, Jesus says, first, baby, you need to stand still and marvel and who I am, and what I do, and what we're doing. And so Jesus actually says, I am the true vine. And he says, that's in verse 1, in verse 5, he says, I am the vine. Now, why the true vine? In John's gospel, we've heard that Jesus is the true light. John says in John 1, 9, he's the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Why, why the true light? Because if you listen to Brian's sermon, this, this 
festival, this feast of lights, would happen in Jerusalem. And it would take place also, and it would reach into the homes of Israelites. But when the true light who comes into the world, Jesus ain't just a light for the Jews anymore. He's going to give light to the nations. In that sense, he's the true light. And when he says, I'm the true bread, he says, Moses did not give you bread. My father gave you bread, but I'm the true bread, the true bread that comes from the father. What was Jesus saying when he was saying he was the true bread? He was saying what happened with Moses in the wilderness, that provision from God, it was a pointer. It was a pointer to the real and ultimate provision of bread from heaven. And that's me. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, we have to be thinking about Old Testament prophecy and fulfillment or shadow and substance. And what you see is what we find in Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt and you drove out the nations and you planted it. Jeremiah 2, I planted a choice vine. Isaiah 5, I planted choice vines. And then Steve read it. Who was the choice vine? It was Israel. Israel and Jacob and Judah, they were supposed to be the vine that went deep in the soil of God and spread out branches across the face of the earth that the nations would come. And guess what we see over and over and over again? They fail. They fail. They fail. Just like you do and I do. And then Jesus says, all is not lost. I'm the true vine. I'm what they were meant to be but could not be. I'm here. And so that's what he's saying. And, and I think I, uh, Psalm, Psalm 80 picks up on it. And Psalm 80 is a psalm of lament. They're lamenting that, that their vineyard is, is overgrown. They're lamenting because they're being judged. But at the end of Psalm 80, verse 17, they say, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made for yourself strong. In other words, Jesus is in the backdrop. Jesus is in the queue. Israel is failing. But they say, Oh, Lord. When you send the true vine, then we will be strong. And Jesus shows up. He says, I'm here. I'm here. And what about the father? He says he's the faithful farmer. And what did the farmer do in the Old Testament? He plucked Israel out of Egypt like seed. He cleared the promised land and he planted them in the promised land. He put vineyards out. He put... Uh, uh, um, um, a fence around. He gave him sunlight. He gave him water. And so Jesus says the father is not just that back then. He is that right now. And so the father does two things. According to Jesus, he will cut off the branches that don't bear fruit. Those who are proximate to the kingdom, but not in it, the father will cut away. And I think we ought to be thinking about Judas, who was around Jesus for a long time, who heard about Jesus a long time, but he was not of Jesus. And the father cut him away. The father's going to do that. And that's a warning, right? I think that's a warning for those of us who play at church. 
And I don't mean play like kids. I mean just kind of our, you know what I mean? Like we're just around Christians, but not really in. Okay, I want my kid to go to this school, so let me go join this church so my kid can get in that school. Like, bro, that's dangerous, dog. You might not need to be doing that, right? Or the person who's around the body and taking sunlight and taking time and and just kind of soaking in but not truly in. Jesus says, man, y'all got to be careful because my father is a farmer. And those that are not truly in, he will cut away. But then you get the pruning aspect of the father. It says that he will prune Christians. And this pruning is so that they might bear more fruit. What does that mean? It means that God himself will reveal our sin. It means that God himself will send trials and test our way. It means that God himself is sovereignly committed to maximizing the fruit of godliness and holiness in your life. And it means that God himself will do the pruning. Before Jesus tells them to do anything, he says, marvel that I'm the vine. My father's the vine dresser. That before there is anything for us to do, he tells us to stand still and savor this and believe this and take this in. But we're not merely called to stand still and let God. We're actually called to participate. And this is where we do play an active role in bearing fruit. But it's not what you think. You see, Jesus talks about bearing fruit eight times. And guess what? He never puts bearing fruit in the imperative. He uses another word more than bearing fruit. And that word is abide. And that's 11 times. And that is in the imperative. Now, what is he saying? Bearing fruit is the goal, but the command is to abide. We don't aim to bear fruit. We aim to abide. And as we abide, the fruitfulness will come from our union with him. Y'all got to understand that that is how the gospel is working in this passage. He is not just saying, try harder, do better. He's actually saying, abide in me, stay connected, draw near to me. And as you draw near to me by faith, you will become a fruitful branch. Now, Abiding means, it's a powerful metaphor. It means to stay connected. Jesus says, I am the vine. He's saying, my roots go deep. Life flows through me. I'm the major stalk. I'm the trunk of the tree. And you're the branches. And branches that remain connected to the trunk, they will grow. I will send nourishment and life to you. And you connected to me will by your union with me grow fruit. The fruit is mine, says Jesus, but it will come through you. If you separate the branch from the trunk, not only will there be no fruit, but the branch itself will wither. Jesus is saying, 
We don't have to concentrate on producing fruit. It is a byproduct of our union with him. And notice back in Jeremiah 2, God told them, though you wash yourself with bleach, you are still filthy. But in here in John 15, Jesus says, you are clean through my words. You have been cleansed by the blood of the cross. You've been cleaned through me. And now in your renewed state and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, you are now able, you are able by the Spirit and your union with me to become all that I have desired you to be. But it's going to be through you not working at the fruit, but staying close to me. You stay close to me. And abiding here is not mysterious. He actually says in verse 7, we abide by letting the word of God dwell richly in our hearts. After we have been united to him by faith, we commune with him by staying in the word and meditating on the word and hearing the word. There is no abiding in Christ apart from Christ's word. If you can't understand the King James, I will buy you an ESV. If you can't stay awake at night at 11 p.m. when the kids are going to bed, read on your lunch break. If you can't understand the word alone, get in a learning community of Christians. If you can't see, ask someone to read it to you. If you can't stay awake in the 11 a.m. service, bring you some coffee with a top on it. I talked to some of the deacons. We got tiles now. These tiles, they, they pop up. The big thing that Jesus is saying to us, that we abide in him under and through the word. We abide in verse 10 through obeying the word, the commandments. He uses this if-then language, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide. You are my friends if you do what I command. That sounds strange, but it is true. Taking what we hear and read and fighting by all of his power to put it into practice. And then Jesus gives them one example. The one commandment he tells them is to love one another. In what way, Jesus? As I have loved you. Do you know who was with Jesus then? Judas was gone, but you got Mr. Know-it-all Peter. You got the sons of thunder who want to be at his right hand and his left hand. You got Matthew who sold out the Jews and who was a tax collector for Rome. You got Simon who is a zealot who wants to overthrow Rome. And Jesus looks at all of them and he says, I want you to love one another, not just tolerate one another, but deeply love one another. Lay down your life. I'm not asking you to go do the cross, but I am telling you to take up your cross. I'm asking you to count one another better, to be there for one another, to forgive one another, to be willing to be corrected and called out without getting your feelings hurt and break fellowship, to share with one another. And we need to hear this. Abiding in Jesus actually has rhythms to it. 
Rhythms of sitting under the word, rhythms of worshiping with the saints, rhythms of prayer, rhythms of fasting, rhythms of showing up for church, rhythms of repenting, rhythms of singing his praise, rhythms of being generous with our time. These are rhythms that Jesus is inviting us to not to work for anything. We have him already. But these rhythms enable us to grow and bear fruit. And so Jesus is saying, if you are going to stay connected, you can't treat your sanctification as something you put no effort in. We work with all of his might to stay near. And so he's saying, don't just do something. Stand there. Savor him. And after you stand there, go do something. This week I was with some men in our men's gathering. And we were reading Ephesians 5. And that's when Paul says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her. He washes her in the word to present her holy and blameless before himself. And as we were talking Jesus doesn't just love with words or feelings, but he loves with action and sacrifice. And I was really tempted to put on my pastor hat and exegete Ephesians 5, right? And then the Holy Spirit said, boy, just chill out. (laughs) And I was grieved because I was hearing the word. And I want to obey. And I confessed. I said, man, like, this last couple of weeks, man, we just, she's been working. I've been working. Kids got stuff. We're going to end-of-year programs, award banquets, and we're just missing each other. And I had to go to my wife after I was with those men and say, babe, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I need your forgiveness. I've prayed with other people this week and I've not prayed with you. I've read God's word with other people and not with you. And I need your forgiveness. And I need you to tell me what you need from me as a husband. And right there on our back porch, We abided in the love of Jesus together. You see what Jesus is saying? Sit under my word. Keep my word. And our world opened up right then and there. I'll close with this. There are some collateral blessings with abiding and bearing fruit. Did you notice what Jesus says? He says, first in verse 8, the Father is glorified. Second, he says, his joy in us will be present and our joy will be full. Where have we seen those two words linked together? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
and you get them both right here in this passage. And so as we abide, as we draw near, as we bear fruit, we actually bring glory to God and Jesus smiles and our joy is made full in obeying, in staying near, in being in the word, in abiding with Jesus. That's a collateral blessing. It's not just fruit for the world to see, it's fruit for us to partake of. And thirdly, our prayers are effectual. Look at verse 7 and 16. If you abide, ask whatever you wish and it would be done for you. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's like, that, that sounds like some health and wealth stuff, don't it? You mean to tell me that as we abide, we know how to pray? And as we abide in King Jesus and with the Father, that our prayers are actually effectual? What Jesus is saying is this. You put two people next to each other, one who does not abide, one who does not know him, one who is not in the word, and one who is, and one who savors him and cherishes him, and both of those prayers make it to the throne room of God. Jesus is actually saying, who do you think God hears and delights to attend to. One is coming to him as a slave. One is coming to him to get something, but one is coming to him as a child, as a son. And Jesus will answer the prayers of his friends and his sons. That's an invitation. May we abide. May Jesus send life through our lives and may the fruit bubble up by virtue of our union with him, not something that is produced and manufactured by men. And may the father see it and attend to it and do whatever he needs that you might bear more fruit, fruit that will last. And may our joy be full and may our prayers be heard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you, and we thank you for your word. I do pray, Lord, that you will uh, challenge us all, remind us that this age that we live in does not have answers as to why we're here. You've chosen us, and you've appointed us to bear fruit, fruit for your glory. Help us, Lord, to see that we cannot do this on our own. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And so as we come face to face, Lord, with our own rottenness, take us, Lord, to the cross. Help us, Lord, to marvel in the fact that you are the true vine and your father is the vine dresser. And before there is anything for us to do, you call us to marvel and to believe in who you are and what you are up to. And from that place, Lord, we work with your power mightily working in us, not to get ourselves into the branch, but to abide and to remain. May fruitfulness pop up in our lives as we take exams, as we parent, as we work at our marriage, as we fight sin, as we say yes to righteousness, as we repent. May our lives be marked with manifold fruitfulness to the praise of your name. May it be so, King Jesus. Amen.